We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Sometimes I describe those dresses as a cross between an acting exercise and a therapist session because the reactions to them ran the gamut of elation to hate, <laughs> polyester. <laughs> and uh, But it also made each of them examine where they were in their lives, not necessarily in their careers, but in their lives as women. to the Art of Costume Podcast. I am your host, Spencer Williams, and thank you so much for joining me for another bonus episode. Today's episode is all about the new film, Women Talking, for which I absolutely loved. I'm so excited to get into it with today's guest. Every once in a while, you see a film that not only exceeds all expectations on screen, but also possesses momentous ability to change perspective and inspires learning, compassion, and understanding. Women Talking is one of those films. And I'll admit, I was a little hesitant before I went to see this movie. You all know me. I'm a big science fiction, fantasy, Marvel nerd. So a film that took place around a group of Mennonite women wasn't exactly my cup of tea. But my mind was changed. I walked out of these theaters so inspired, fell in love with this film, and I just couldn't wait to talk to today's guest. But before we do that, let me give a quick summary. Do nothing, stay and fight, or leave. These are the choices the women of an isolated religious community must make as they grapple with reconciling a brutal reality with their faith. And that is women talking. Now going behind a wardrobe, we have director Sarah Polly and costume designer, my friend, Keita Alfred. She is incredible. Some of her notable work includes... Romance and Style, Soul Food, Trapped in a Purple Haze. She was costume supervisor on American Gods. And she's been assistant costume designer on a ton of projects, including The Road to Avalonia, in which Sarah Polly starred. And with that, I am so excited to introduce my guest, costume designer Keita Alfred. Welcome, Keita. Thank you. Thank you, Spencer. I've been so looking forward to meeting you. I fell in love with women talking I have to say, I was a little hesitant at first. I was like, Mennonite costumes, that, that'll that be interesting. Fell in love with it. It was incredible. So powerful. Thank you. Glad <laughs> to hear. They're, um, they are definitely a specific look, that's for sure. Definitely. Um, funnily enough, some of which has been in Vogue and Elle in the past year or so. Sarah and I were laughing about, did they start this or did we start this? What's going on here? <laughs> you can take a little credit. That's okay. Yeah, very different context, of course, but uh, it's out there in the world. So the world's paying attention to this look right now. Right. Well, let's jump right into it. Perhaps from an outside perspective, this might seem like a simple film in terms of costume, right? But you and I both know that this is actually quite a complex 
project designing costumes for a Mennonite community. First, how familiar were you with this culture before you began the project? Well, I thought I was familiar with it. And then I learned that that was definitely not the case. I grew up in southern Manitoba in Winnipeg, which is about four hours north of Fargo, to give Americans the, the context, to put it in context, Thank right in the center that, of the yeah. continent. <laughs> and um, it is definitely Mennonite country. It's one of the first places that the Russian Mennonites came to North America oh. in the 1870s. They were granted, the Mennonites were granted land in southern Manitoba because they were renowned as hardy farmers and hardworking people. So they came and were allowed um, exemption, military exemption and the ability to have their own schools and not send their children to the public school system. So the Canadian government agreed to that in order to entice them over. They came and even after spending 500 years in Russia and the steppes of you know Ukraine and Siberia, they went, what have we done? Right. <laughs> there is not a stick for literally 500 miles in any direction. Um, and because they are the resourceful and hardworking people that they are, they made Manitoba work for wow. them. So they're a big part of Manitoba culture uh, and were a big part of my life to a certain extent growing up. Um, where I grew up in Winnipeg, except for the indigenous people who, of course, have been there for tens of thousands of years, everybody's from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's not a history of a thousand years of one culture being there, again, besides the indigenous culture. So all of us that came from elsewhere <laughs> and many different cultures all knew about each other. And, and Manitoba is a place where people's individual cultures are still celebrated. We're not... Uh, I mean, we have blended, of course. I, I'm a, <laughs> I'm an example of that. <laughs> but each individual culture is still celebrated. So I was quite. I thought I was familiar with Mennonite culture, um, in the, the foods, the language, Plautdeutsch language, Low German, um, just um, in you know the industriousness of the Mennonite culture, frugality and practicality, but. I really did not know about their history and their, their very specific histories, their, their, the importance of genealogy to their culture. And through the help of two consult, cultural consultants, one first in Ma southern Manitoba, in Winkler, Manitoba, and then she put me on to another dear friend of hers in south, southwestern Ontario, I was led into the culture in a way that I would never have been able to had I just gone about this as a research project. Right. Um, and so through the kindness and generosity of these two women and then the women and men, the, the community that they introduced me to, I was able to do an amazing amount of research that I wouldn't have been had access to otherwise. Right. And to learn about uh, manufacturing techniques and the cultural reasons behind plain dress that I, I would never have had access to that. So, so it's through their generosity that I was able to, to do this work, to find the vendors I needed, to find the manufacturers I needed that over and above our very hardworking sewing room, you know, our film sewing room. And I will be forever indebted to them. And so out because of that kindness that was afforded me, 
I it was really important to me and still is that that costumes be as accurate as possible. And they are they are <laughs> accurate. They are authentic. <laughs> they are authentic. In fact, some of them on some of the background are real Mennonite dresses bought from real Mennonite women, either at yard sales or through contacts or etc. That's incredible. Yeah. And we use those in fitting the actors, the our principal actors, before we built for them and designed their costumes with reference to the to the real thing. So the actors even had a chance to wear real garments from people in the real community to get a sense of uh, of what they could use for their characters from the feeling of the real the real thing. Wow. Yeah, it's so interesting. So funny how you say you kind of came in with one perspective, but you evolved as you start working on this project because that's yes, how I felt absolutely. as an audience member too, going into this film with one idea of like, oh, everyone's going to be wearing just plain white dresses with little bonnets. Yeah. Not at all what this film was. No, and everybody <laughs> who doesn't know much about Mennonite culture likes to talk about bonnets. Right. <laughs> just seems to be I don't know catch- why that just came I know, it's head. a word that people know and they associate <laughs> with Little House on the Prairie, I think. Yes. But our ladies don't wear bonnets. Right. Some some Mennonite cultures do, Swiss Mennonites do, but our our women are Russian Mennonite. They're based on Russian Mennonite <clears throat> culture, which is slightly different. Um yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you got a new appreciation. It's because seeing women where I grew up, seeing women dressed the way the women in our film are, although they're not quite as conservative as the community in our film, it's perfectly normal to see a woman or a group of women get out of a minivan in a grocery store parking lot dressed the way the women in our film are. Right. So that was that's normal to me. What I didn't know was the history behind all of it and the reasons and the the faith-based uh reasons behind plain dress. Interesting. And that's actually what I want to move into is the significance of the plain dress. I um you know know a little bit about it. But uh, just hearing you talk about the research behind this, I find it endlessly fascinating. Um, The word is plain. The psychology behind this garment is plain with the lack of buttons, zippers. Um, But it's also not too plain. I think it's actually quite sophisticated the way these garments are constructed. So I'd love to hear your thoughts behind it. Thank you for saying so. I guess guess you've had a look at at, that. up close at how they are constructed because that was a that was definitely something that I did not know and our uh, Janice Skinner our cutter and our whole team of sewers had to wrap our heads around that and I actually had a, a mock-up made by a cutter in Winnipeg that was built completely differently from the way these are but eventually we got some real ones and we went oh that makes way more sense right. <laughs> but um yes as you said plain is in the name and plain dress refers to not simply a dress that is plain without adornment but to uh, a way of dressing a way of dressing that adheres to modesty uh, you know tenets or ideas of modesty of the lack of pride of the lack of ostentatious, ostentation, uh, ostentatiousness, in order to remind the wearer, and, and this applies to the men as well, to remind the wearer of their devotion to their faith and their place in the universe, and to to negate 
pridefulness, showiness, uh, competition, you know, how, you know, kids imagine kids in junior high, you know, everybody's got to have the new pair of jeans, the new pair of runners. That is in, in some ways you could relate it to a type of uniform, but not for the same reasons that somebody wears a school uniform, for example, it's to sort of take all that preoccupation with the self out of the picture and focus on, in this case, on faith. Interesting. I also think a lot about like restriction when I think of the plain dress in ways. To a certain extent, yes. And I, and I have talked about in other conversations about the restriction that these dresses give. And, and I'm realizing more and more, and I realized once I put one of them on <laughs> that, um, I mean, there were restrictions for me as a designer, certainly, because there are very narrow parameters in, with, in which I could work. You can't add jewelry, you can't add lace, you can't add a petticoat, you can't add four-inch heels. Right. Um, But restriction, yes, in that, for example, when I first started researching, and and although I'd seen these dresses for 50-something years in my life at this point, I didn't understand how a woman with 10 children who works on a farm for, you know, 20 hours a day, <laughs> close to, has a lot of children, has a lot of responsibilities, a lot of house, housework, why they would want to wear a long-sleeved polyester. All of us uh, contemporary, modern, secular people balk at the polyester. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? But, and a couple of the actors <laughs> did too, but we won't go into that. Right. Um, uh, why this seemingly impractical garment? And then I put one on. And my entire view changed because you can move, you're protected from the elements. The long sleeves seem ridiculous in, for example, in Bolivia, where the real events uh, about which our story are written took place. Um, You're protected from the sun. You're protected from dust. You're protected from the work that you're doing in a hayloft, in a farm with a cow, anywhere. You can move because of the pleats. And you put that dress into whether it's a a bucket to hand wash it or into a mangle washing machine, and it comes out exactly the way it went in. So once I figured that out, and once I'd washed a few and and just pulled them up and went, oh, I get it. (laughs) I get it now. I didn't think of it like that. It makes sense. I mean, this whole part of this, a big part of this film is the women protecting each other and they're protecting each other with their clothing as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, um, yes, it, it, in certain respect, especially again, as modern, uh, and I'm speaking subjectively here as a modern secular, uh, feminist (laughs) woman, I just thought, what is, why, why with the polyester, why with the dresses, why with the everything? And then of course, through my research, realized that there are 500 years of, of the Mennonites movements through Europe, uh, distilled down into these dresses, their beginnings in the Netherlands with the puff sleeves and the pleated skirts and the aprons moving into what was first Prussia and now Poland 
and sort of the Baltic and you know, the northern northern Europe area European countries, the florals, the embroidery on the scars. We don't see much of that in our film, right? But the, the floral prints come from being exposed to those northern countries. Then they moved into Russia and Ukraine, which we know anybody's familiar with Ukrainian dress in particular. It's just alive with flowers and pattern and layers of color. They spent hundreds of years there. <clears throat> and then down in even into southern parts of Europe, southern parts of Eastern Europe, where the where similar traditions exist of um, head wraps, colorful fabrics, fringe, um, again, the puff sleeves, the pleated skirts, the apron for practicality reasons, mm -hmm. practical reasons. So these modern, what we at first glance think is a fairly dowdy polyester dress is actually a representation of hundreds of years of, of tradition and taking elements of each of the cultures that they moved through the Mennonites before they came to North America. And then once they got to North America, again, you would think a, a culture as traditional as Russian Mennonites who maintain plain dress would want, would also want natural fabrics that perhaps they made themselves or, you know, were uh, more breathable, etc. But in fact, the polyester also comes out of practicality because as the more uh, traditional uh, cultures moved away from the more secular versions of their church and of their culture, the farther away they went from town, essentially, from, from civilization. So often the only thing that they could get were fabrics that were available in small communities that were near them, that were affordable, because they really are apart from the from the general economy in the areas that they are. They they contribute to in many ways because they're farmers and uh, woodworkers and and craftspeople. But in the jungles of Bolivia or you know um, Paraguay on the coast or or Belize, often the only thing they had access to were imported polyesters. And again, if you're going to throw 15 dresses in a washing machine a couple times a week, polyester is your is the answer because it comes out exactly the way it went in. Wow, I, <laughs> Kita, I love talking to you. You have such a wealth of knowledge. You're giving me like costume historian vibes right now, and I feel oh, like I could talk you. to you that's, forever. That's a high compliment, Spencer. Thank you, because that's my that's my jam. The research is my jam. Right. Clearly, you really put a lot of thought into this film, which, you know, yeah. some would say looks rather simple, but it's clearly not at all simple. Yeah, there was there's a lot of um, there was a lot of research that I did and was was um, privileged to have access to, to be given access to by the Mennonite community, which uh, I would never have been able to do without them. And to learn the reasons behind, I, I love having my mind changed. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things, especially as I get older, I, I love finding out I'm wrong right. in, in nice ways, generally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a part of it all. Yeah, and I love discovering all these the reasons behind these things that I just assumed were very simple. And even the practicality of the bodice, you'll see you can see in some of the top left pictures there with um Ben and and Rooney and Claire, you can see the snaps on the left shoulder. 
And I now have about 530 of these dresses in in my collection. And every last one of them has snaps on the left shoulder like that and is constructed the same. And so what that does is that they sometimes refer to that as a bib. I'm sure there's a different word in low low German for it that I don't know, Mm -hmm. but it snaps off. And underneath that is a, a button, a snap front blouse essentially. So the, so the top of the bodice of the dress is a snap front blouse so that if you're nursing one of your 15 children, you can very simply undo the underpiece and expose a breast to nurse and culturally these russian especially these very traditional russian mennonite women are very uh, shy is not the right word modest is a better word of exposing any part of their body even amongst women even amongst their family so nursing would be conducted for example simply with as little breast exposed as possible a blanket over the child and and i was told not in the company of other women, not certainly not in the company of your other children, even because of the level of modesty. Wow. So the design of these dresses makes that practical. Interesting. Do you feel like when I wasn't going to originally ask this, but it brought up an interesting point. You said that, you know, a lot of this was relying on the actual Mennonite community with, you know, sourcing a lot of these garments or you know research did you feel like there was an openness to that my experience of the mennonite culture has always even before i knew any of this and did any of this research has been one of of generosity and kindness and so my experience researching was a reinforcement of that people were were happy to share with me because not even because they knew I needed to make a fancy movie because they knew I had a need Mm -hmm. because I had a question that needed answered answering. And they were generous as in my experience, they always are with help, with helping. They they have a, a tradition of service to others in their community. And a curious thing about this film is that many of the, women who live this way will never see this film. Interesting. Yeah. We'll never see this movie. Um, They were very curious as to why I would be interested as somebody who was not of the culture would be interested in their culture and be interested in their way of, of making things. Even I I even had women building um, overalls in the traditional way for me. And, and in that process, <clears throat> one would tell me, well, this pocket is here is because this is where a man would keep his packet of cigarettes. This is where he'd keep his his pocket watch. And this is where he'd keep, you know, or his little tin of tobacco. So all of those little details were shared with me in the building of this stuff. Wow. But yet people were curious. I, I think because some of them who are not as modern as, as some of the people that helped me. Um, so probably it, seeing a movie would not even concern them. Mm-hmm. So they kind of thought, why is this crazy brown lady asking about our, <laughs> our costumes? You know, why, why does she want so much fabric? Why does she, why is she asking how these dresses are made? And I would explain, I'm a costume designer. I, I would, I would kind of give the the basics that um, I study many cultures. I study many different types of dress. 
I'm interested in collecting this particular type of dress because it's representative of your culture and it's unusual for modern people to, you know, they don't often think about this kind of thing. So I think in some ways they were glad that I was interested, but in many cases probably will never see the result. Right. Yet, yet we're generous and, and more than generous with their time with their knowledge, with their help. To me, it sounds like it's more about them wanting to tell their story and they trusted you in a way of telling their story. It's not about, like you said, it's not about them seeing the film or not. It's about sharing their history, their knowledge, their story with you to portray in an accurate, accurate you know, authentic way, which I think is yes, quite beautiful. I, I hope you're right. Thank you, Spencer. Yeah. And they, <laughs> like I said, we're, we're kind of curious why I was interested. And I said, well, because it's interesting. Your, mm -hmm. your culture is interesting right. to other people who don't know about it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Uh, so moving back to the textiles and the colors, I was struck by the use of textiles and colors in this film as they were clearly significant to the overall storytelling. And the colors to me said a lot about the characters, who they are, where they are going. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for noticing that <laughs> because we had so few details to work with. Like I said, we couldn't add a petticoat or a coat, you know, a cape or lace. We had to work within very narrow parameters and try subtly and almost subliminally to differentiate characters. So I broke the families into three groups, the three main families in the loft, the Friesen women, who are Agatha, Salome, uh, Ona, and Nietzsche. And then uh, the Friesens, who are Greta, Mael, and Marike, and uh, Auche, the youngest. And then Scarface Jans and her family. And instinctively, just this is just my, was my subjective take on it. Uh, and in order to, for me to keep them all straight, because because there are so many characters and families, I divided them into moods for me, not sort of specifically uh, assigned colorways, but it, I, I did it more instinctively. The, the Friesens, for example, to me, and again, subjectively, and then I spoke with Sarah and eventually the actors about this, but they were more forthright in their reactions. They were more intellectual in their mm -hmm. reactions. So I was drawn towards purer colors for them, the purples, the strong blues, repetitive, uh, <clears throat> regular patterns uh, with forward movement in my mind, even though they don't specifically have for it just as, as a concept, they were more intellectually uh, driven. The Lowens with uh, Greta, Marike and Mael, I was drawn to more natural colors, greens and browns and rusts and bigger, open, more open patterns, uh, less constricted shapes in the patterns and and something uh, murkier and uh, l less defined because of in my interpretation of their characters there was more going on under the surface 
with them that was more emotionally motivated. So we've got in instinct, I call it with them and intellect with the other and neither is more important than the other. They are just different reactions to the same problem, di uh, different ways of dealing with the similar circumstances. And then the Jans family, which is Francis's character and, and her daughters and, and uh, granddaughter, it, because they were the most traditionally, well, Scarface particular, traditionally stuck in the past and in uh, the old ways and in and immovable. You, you can see me, but the audience won't be able to see me making this clenching uh, motion with my fist. I always do that when I talk about them because to me, they represented immovability. So rust and dried blood and things from years ago that were impossible to move and change and refresh is what I had in mind for them. Smaller patterns that made them recede and uh, be less noticed. Uh, the dark, dark for, for Fran's character, Scarface. I didn't want to put everybody in black, even though the older woman would traditionally, could traditionally be in, in plain black as well. That makes for a very boring movie that's already desaturated, <laughs> right? So well, it looks like you and I do enjoy the black though. So <laughs> yes, yes. Although fashionable, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of boring on screen sometimes. Right. So, and I also had one vendor in uh, Southern Manitoba when I was buying a, a bunch of fabrics from her. I would, she unsolicited, thankfully, said to me, I had my hand on something and, and she said something like, do you have older women and younger women? I said, all kinds, but I'm looking now for the older women. She said, oh, my mother would wear this one here, not that one. My mother would wear something like this. Mm. And she was at least my age. So her mother was, and she still wore plain dress, but much more relaxed. Like she had a cell phone, she wore a watch, all kinds of, you know, <laughs> right. much more modern, but still elements of plain dress. And so her mother was, would have been very traditional, probably like the women in our film. And so she guided me just culturally to prints that were age specific or more age appropriate is a better way to say it. Um, male you'll notice is probably the brightest fabric in our, in our ensemble. And that piece of fabric is the only one uh, that the dresses are made of that isn't polyester. Mm. That's one I found that I just fell in love with and I had to have it. And then Sarah fell in love with it and we needed <laughs> to get it in the movie. Well, that's that. <laughs> and because it was so exuberant, we thought male was the was the girl for that. Um, but ironically, it was the hardest dress to keep track of and to take care of because it moved. Whereas the polyester just did what you told it and the rayon stretched. Oh. So it, it took extra care. So it that was a, 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 a real-life example of why the women use the fabrics that they do. We we saw that, like, don't be a fool. Why would you use cotton? you got to press cotton. <laughs> I, I don't have time to press 15 dresses. Why would you do that? So it was a very practical lesson for us in the historical background of, and not so historical, the modern usage of what is seemingly historical. Right. 
I love that. It's so cool. That was definitely one of my favorite parts of the movie was just seeing all these colors and textiles work together. I noticed I was in the theater and I was like, oh, Kita really did it up here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> of course. It was so nice to finally see all the women together in the hayloft because you, know, you can talk all you like and do fittings. And, and because it was COVID, we could rarely get everybody together in a room, right? So I oh, would have right. all my swatches everywhere. But until I actually saw them, in there my shoulders just kind of came down about four inches right I, that could have like, went way wrong <laughs> yes exactly I thought, oh that crazy idea actually worked i guess right <laughs> i have to let go and let my subconscious do things sometimes and thankfully it, it all came together this film was equally as powerful as it was personal in order to make this film work i imagine you had to work very closely with the cast I would love to hear about your collaboration with the incredible cast, which includes Claire Foy, Rooney Mara, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivy, and Francis McDermott. Incredible yeah. cast. It is an incredible cast. And I, among so many things, everything about this film was special for me. And unlike any other professional experience, mainly because of the support from Sarah and from the producers, the collaboration with the cast, which is also almost unprecedented for me as a designer, um, and to have the luxury of the time to research and the time to contact people, even though it was by Zoom for the, you know, there was of course that crunch of the last week before camera where everybody was finally out of quarantine and, but sometimes in rehearsals, so I didn't even have actors to myself wow. for a very long time. But um, what we did have was time on Zoom. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I had meetings with each of the actors, Ben included, to talk about what we could do as the costume department to help them portray what they wanted to about their characters. And again, because the parameters were so narrow, it's not like one could always wear her collar popped or, I mean, I'm aging myself, yeah, but you exactly. know what I mean? Like there weren't those kind of flourishes that we could do. One wasn't always You're in... like, let's have fun, but don't get crazy with it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we had literally, okay, what color do you want? How many pleats do you, you know, to a certain extent. And there was all kinds of, you know, more subtle work that went into it, but I was lucky to have really interesting, uh, conversation and quite deep conversations with the actors because I had done so much research and been given access to so much important information about Mennonite culture. Sometimes I was the one that was giving them cultural information as well. So that was, that was a great exchange <clears throat> that I was lucky to have with them. And then also um, we did things like talk about what does it, what does your body look like after you've had 15 children? I always use 15. It's the number I can remember, but the Mennonites have big families and t a 10, 10 kids is kind of an average family size in wow. these really conservative uh, communities. Wow. So what, how do you hold yourself? How do you walk? How do you like, maybe you've had 18 babies, but 15 of them are alive. What does that do to your body? What does it do to your posture? What does it do to your breasts, for example? Maybe you're nursing five kids under, you know, do you need some kind of restriction under your garment to, as an actor, as a reminder that 
one part of your body is in pain or has been, or especially after these horrific attacks, sexual assaults, what is going on under those pleated dresses? Right. Really? So we did a body augmentation. We did a certain amount of restriction. We added, we subtracted, none of which you'll see on camera as a pretty dress or a magnificent pair of shoes. But our work, uh, I am hoping, (laughs) (laughs) help the actors find where they needed to go in uh, uh, to a certain extent with the with characters it, it added an element i certainly won't be so bold as to say it you know informed every part of their work but um we did what we could to help them add layers to to their work and sometimes i describe those dresses as a cross between an acting exercise and a therapist session Because the reactions to them, when we tried the authentic ones in fittings, uh, ran the gamut of elation to hate, (laughs) polyester (laughs) hate. uh, But it also made each of them examine where they were in their lives. Right. Not necessarily in their careers, but in their lives as women. So that part was very revealing and very rewarding to see. And each of them used those reactions in their character. put the, either the rage or the sense of freedom into their characters. That was re- rewarding for me. That's incredible. This is why we all love costume design. I mean, you know, sometimes good costuming knows when it's time to take a step back and really lend to the authenticity and help these actors, actresses really feel and become the character. And I think this film, what you've done, your entire crew really executed that. So masterfully i will say (laughs) thank you very much spencer i had the best team i had an amazing uh office team and also a sewing team uh several and a set team this our set team has known sarah as long as i have and worked with her on the road to avonlea when she was a child right well that's actually leading me to my next question was that collaboration with the director sarah polly uh can you tell me a little bit about that collaboration it was fantastic. That's the, that's the, I could I, I could end the sweet. sentence there. Yeah, Sarah. I've known Sarah since she was young because I was the assistant costume designer on the Road to Avonlea, a TV series which of which she was the star. And, and ever since I had knew, knew her, then she's always in my mind and still is, of course, this bright spark. As a child, she was. It's kind of simplistic to say wise beyond her years, but she was always uh, smart as a whip, for one thing. <laughs> always was. Poised. Mature is a little simplistic as well. She has an, an amazing mind. And although I didn't see her for 30 years after that wow. experience and between that experience and this, I watched her blossom into an amazing actor, a thoughtful feminist, an activist, a, a director an artist and was not in the little in the least bit surprised because I knew her as a child to have the potential to be those things. She was only a couple of those things as a child. And, <laughs> and the fact that all these other things blossomed out of her is, is in no way surprising. Uh, she is so supportive. She's confident enough in herself and in her work to allow collaboration, which is a very, very rare thing in a 
unfortunately, <laughs> in the film industry to work with people who are confident enough to ask others opinions right. and consider them and use them if they fit and confidently and discreetly say, no, thank you. We're going to try something else. Uh, so it was an amazing collaboration. She is uh, well-spoken. She's an excellent communicator. She is supportive. Our producers were amazingly supportive too. Uh, uh, Lynn Luchabello, our Toronto producer, uh, Didi Gardner, and Francis is one of our producers as well. I've never worked in a situation where I've had so much support and respect. Wow. Respect is the biggest word that comes out of those relationships. Uh, it was an amazing way to work. It was a wonderful experience for many professionally and personally. And it's a really good way to make films because people were happy and got to see their kids and got to maintain their family life and didn't have to be held hostage to some, some crazy auteur's schedule or whims, <laughs> which is often the case. It, it was collaborative. It was supportive. It was rewarding. And it was a lot of fun. Well, that's, I'm so happy for you. And I just met you today, but <laughs> like, <laughs> you're so deserving of this. I'm so glad Thank we had you. such a great experience, especially during such a tumultuous time. You know, this was yeah, filmed was. during COVID. So none of this was easy by a long shot. I wanted to wrap this up. Just, you know, finally, overall, what do you hope audiences take away from this film, uh, the film and the costumes? Well, you just said the word hope. Although it is uh, difficult material to, to deal with, uh, the sexual assault, domestic violence, all of that are, are very, and again, I, I would also like to stress, Spencer, this is not about, this is not a story about something that happens to Mennonite people in a Mennonite community. Sexual violence and the pervasiveness of domestic violence is in every culture. Right. Our film just happens to take place in this community. It is a universal scourge on our on, on human beings, unfortunately. And I hope, and I hope, and I think Sarah would agree with me in this, that we hope that this film reminds people that people can change, lives can change, bravery is possible, and that there is hope even in the most challenging situations. So hope is what I would like to like people to take away from this, even in the even in the costumes. I, I told you about how my mind was changed after putting on one of those dresses and um, the idea of letting go of judgment mm, mm -hmm. and, uh, and of sub subjective opinions. And of course, I had many subjective opinions about uh, the culture and the look about plain dress going into this. And I had my mind changed and I love when that happens. The older I get, the more I like it. <laughs> so hope is what I hope that viewers take away from this. Well, that's beautiful. And I just have to say, you know, I didn't actually put the dress on, but figuratively, <laughs> you know, I was really there and I really took in a whole new appreciation for understanding, you know, this culture um, and just understanding you know, never stop learning and the research that goes into a lot of these things, because not everything is as it seems as yeah, we've talked about. Right. So you're exactly right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> a, that's a really great way of putting it. Learning, never stop learning and, and challenging your ideas about things. 
Well, if this podcast happens to come out before the 17th, I don't think it will, but I'll say it just in case. <laughs> I think everyone should head over to the Fido Museum and check out the free exhibition currently going on. It's a partnership between MGM United Artists releasing at the Fido Museum that features actually costumes from two different films. One of them is Till, Creating a World of Joy and Resistance, designed by Marcy Rogers. She's brilliant. And then, of course, Women Talking and Active Female Imagination, showcasing costumes, props from Women Talking. And it is such a great exhibition. Um, so go check that out. It is free. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kita, for joining me. I really love this Thank conversation. You. I feel like I've learned so much and inspired to keep learning, actually. And this was just such a beautiful film. I really enjoyed this and I really enjoyed meeting you. Thank you. Same here. I enjoyed meeting you and speaking with you, Spencer. Thank you so much. And uh, if you want a dress, I can hook you up. I have 500. <laughs> Thank you. <I'll, laughs> I can I'll... hook you and all your friends up wherever you need. <laughs> you got 500 or so. I'll hit I you do. up. <laughs> I have millions. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time and asking such thoughtful questions. I really enjoyed it. The Art of Costume Blogcast is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Joy Glass and Spencer Williams. Our audio engineering and editing is done by Dan White. Follow us on Instagram at The Art of Costume Pod or visit theartofcostumeblogcast.com for all blogcast updates. If you want to support the show, go to theartofcostume.com slash podstore. Or you can head over to patreon.com slash theartofcostume for some bonus content. For more costume reviews, deep dives, and interviews, head over to theartofcostume.com, a blog dedicated to highlighting the best in costume design. some water myself <laughs> yeah i'm getting all fancy now i'm on the ginger ale the christmas i was, ginger I was ale. like is that champagne or ginger ale <laughs> either way i'm jealous <laughs> i am very fancy that's true <laughs> <laughs> thought i'd keep it pg right. <laughs> ginger <laughs> ale. hey i get it um <laughs>